Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out this evening. Take your Bibles, if you will, and return where we were this morning, back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I will let you know that tonight we are going to be spending quite a bit of time bouncing back and forth to the Old Testament, back to Luke chapter 1, and back and forth. And so be prepared and ready for that as we continue in our study on the journey to Christmas And we're following kind of two themes. Uh, It's one theme overall, but it's two themes. The first theme is on the morning services, we're going to be following those who are living out on a day-to-day basis the Christmas narrative. And so we're going to be looking at, uh, uh, excuse me, Joseph and Mary as well. We're going to be looking at the shepherds and perhaps Herod even in the morning service. At night, we're going to be looking at those who are participating in the Christmas narrative, but are not actually present in the moments in essence. And by that I mean we're going to be looking at the angels next week, and we're going to be looking at the Trinity on Christmas Eve and how the Trinity is involved in the birth of Christ. Tonight we're going to be looking at the Old Testament saints. Did they have a role in the, in the Christmas narrative? The answer is absolutely yes, they did, in anticipation and longing for this day where the birth of the Savior would be announced and Christ indeed would come. And so we're following that theme in the evening where those who are not directly there but are uh, celestial both in heaven and the angels and the Holy Spirit and then also the Old Testament saints in time past and their preparation and anticipation of Christmas and how they all fit together. And tonight we're going to do so by tying it together because we're going to use Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah's words, that are spoken nine months after he went silent to point us back to the Old Testament. And so that's where we're going to be tonight, bouncing back and forth. We're going to be at the end of Luke chapter 1 tonight, and we'll be working our way through verses 67 and following. It's been some time ago now, but... For those of you who do remember, it's been many years ago now, it's, it's scary how time flies, but uh, you may remember Martin and Gracia Burnham, and I've mentioned them in an illustration at times before. Martin and Gracia were held captive on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines as they had been seized from their vacation. They were missionaries. They had been seized from their vacation and hauled over to the Philippines where they would be uh, traveled back and forth across this island in the Philippines for many, many months. Uh, We recognize and remember, if you know the story and you know the events that took place, that Martin was killed uh, and Gracia was released on that day. But as I prepared for this message and this entire series, I reflected back on a conversation I had with Gracia. We we know Gracia personally, Lisa and I do. We uh, have known her kids. Uh, She was in an IFCA church in Kansas, and so we got to know her during that time. And And I had a conversation with her after the ordeal, and I was reminded of that conversation. When we look back to the Old Testament, we see God's mercy and grace demonstrated very clearly in anticipation of the Christmas message. But as part of the captive process that Gracia and Martin had to endure, they were told of the stories of Allah. And They were told what a great God, little g, God, he is. However, the attributes of Allah do not include love or mercy. And so there was no element in which God would demonstrate 
love, or Allah would demonstrate love to the people who followed after this little g-god. And therefore, Allah was a difficult god to serve. Those who worship him must resort to drastic measures, including terrorism as we call it today. Many in Christian circles view God the Father, though, in kind of the same way. They view God the Father as distant and somewhat difficult to get to know. And what we find in the Old Testament is absolutely very staggeringly different than Allah. And it's important for us to understand this. Because we live in a day and age in which you may encounter those who are upset that you practice Christmas, that you celebrate the birth of the Savior. We need to have answers for them, and we need to declare to them a God who loves and is merciful. And that is who we find as we go through the Old Testament. The saints of the Old Testament were those who kept the law, certainly, although recognizing that they were incapable of doing so in its entirety, They needed the sacrificial system. They were anticipating the coming of Christ. And they were anticipating Christ because of the law. And those are the ones that we want to hear voices of tonight. And so tonight we're going to have a gathering of those around us. And among the voices we're going to hear tonight are Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're going to hear of Malachi and Amos. And we're going to hear also from David and others who will participate in the Christmas narrative from far before the birth of the Savior. But in doing so, we're going to hear how they anticipated and looked forward and longed for the day, longing for Christ to come. And so with that start, we begin in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verses 67. I'm going to read through verse 69, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time and His Word tonight. Let's let's, uh, begin here in verse 67. The Scripture says, And his father, Zechariah, this is speaking of uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been born in the passage before what we are starting what we started this morning and now what we're starting tonight. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text that is before us tonight that reminds us and helps us to go back. We're still building a foundation and we're looking ahead to the great truths of the birth, the actual birth of Christ that will be coming in the next week or two. We reflect on those and we read those and we meditate on those during this time of the year as we celebrate Christmas and the birth of our Savior. We sing these carols that have been part of Christianity for centuries. Lord, we also want to be mindful that we are not the only peoples who have looked long into the birth of Christ. We praise you for the Old Testament saints who would pave the way, who would be used of you to foretell and promise the coming Messiah. So much information is given that Simeon and Anna would be those who were looking forward to meeting Christ. And indeed, when they met Christ in the temple, when Christ was brought there to be dedicated, they would proclaim the excellencies of their Creator God, the Savior of the world. Lord, we want to capture the same. We do not want the familiarity of looking back to be that which allows us to be in some sort of lull through this Christmas season, but instead I pray that we would dig deeply into your word, that we would be joyfully recognizing the way that time was fulfilled according to your plan, according to your direction, 
at the exact time, at the appointed time, Christ came. Lord, we are encouraged by this because, again, we are looking forward to the return of Christ to meet his church in the air, and we long for this day as well. And so we understand both the Old Testament saints' anticipation and the New Testament saints looking back. I pray that we'd be found faithful and obedient to look ahead as we spend time tonight recognizing the same kind of anticipation in the Old Testament. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it this evening. Bless us as we spend time in your word that you would be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We begin here recognizing first the promises of the Lord must cause God's people to break out in praise at the coming of the Redeemer. There should be a response for you and I when we gather around the manger. When we gather around the manger, even reflecting back over 2,000 years of church history, as we gather around the manger, we should burst out in praise. We should be as the angels who declared the glory of God when they called the shepherds to meet Christ. We should be as, I'm sure, the Old Testament saints who weren't afforded the opportunity to stand around the manger, but would look ahead to that time. And they would burst out in praise at the coming of the Messiah. And so tonight, as we dig in, we're going to start with Zechariah's voice returning. It returns after the birth of John the Baptist. So nine months have gone by, and John is born. And we understand that as this process is happening, going back to 60, verse 63, as John the Baptist is born, uh, Zechariah is going to speak for the very first time. And notice what he does in verse 63. Uh, there's some question over the name. What are we going to call this child? And verse 63 says this, And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Isn't that fascinating? We think of a writing tablet, we think of handing you the Bic pen that is sitting next to uh, the three-ring binder. That There's no such thing in uh, Zachariah's time. This would not have been an easy thing for Zechariah to do, but it, he grabs something to quickly write on, and as he's writing, he writes the name John. And why did he write that? From what we saw earlier in the chapter that the angel Gabriel told him to name the child John because he was going to be John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. Continue on, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Imagine you are unable to speak for nine months, but you have a lot to say. Zechariah had a lot to say. He had lost his ability to speak while he was offering incense to the Lord and the, the sacrifice of prayers, that the prayers would be offered to the Lord. He comes out uh, going to address, normally would have addressed, given some sort of benediction to those who had been assembled for the three o'clock offering. And as he is brought out of the Holy of Holies, he is mute. He's not able to speak. I imagine from that point on, John had, or Zechariah rather, had a lot to say. There was a lot that he wanted to say. He wanted to say what was going on inside of the Holy of Holies. He wanted to say what the angel had said. He wanted to say what John would do, what this child would do. There was so much for him to say. Then there was more to say because when Jesus would, in Mary's womb, would enter in, to Elizabeth in Zechariah's house, John the Baptist would leap in Elizabeth's womb. And I imagine Zechariah wanted to tell of those details, but can you imagine you've had nine months to ready what you're going to say? 
Zechariah had a lot to say, but he's going to say a lot in a very short period of time, and that's what we're going to focus on. Nine months. Nine months for Zechariah to prepare for what we're about to read, what we're about to study. First, he as he begins to speak and bless God, there's a fear, verse 65, a fear comes over all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea. You can imagine that as Zechariah begins to speak, there's murmurings that are going out. Zechariah, the priest, who was mute after the sacrifices that had been offered nine months ago, is now speaking. Remember, it had been 400 years of silence. Amos had promised this in Amos 8.11. And now Zechariah is speaking. The last time that he spoke was the last time, was the time rather, not the last time, was the time that the angel had come to speak to him in verses 18 through 23 at the beginning of this chapter. Zechariah was finishing up the sacrifices and the people were waiting to hear the benediction, the blessing from him, and he had nothing that he could mouth out to them, to speak to them because he was mute. Now, he's filled with the Spirit. We talked a little bit about this in my Sunday school class as we're discussing pneumatology and we're working through this in our systematic theology. He's filled with the Spirit of God and he begins to speak. There are many times throughout the nativity where this begins to happen. Remember, this is Old Testament times. We're not into New Testament yet. This is Old Testament times. And while your Bibles say we've turned over into the New Testament, these are transitionary books in the Gospels. The church won't start until Acts chapter 2. And so these are not the same time. This time that Zechariah is living in is not the same dispensation that you and I live in. And Zechariah has the Spirit of God come upon him, and he is speaking as he's filled by the Spirit. This is a unique thing in the Old Testament. This wasn't a normal thing until the New Testament when at the moment of salvation you are instantly indwelt by the Spirit of God today. That was not the case then. And the Spirit comes in and the result of the Spirit's filling of Zechariah, the, the Spirit directs worship and Zechariah, after having nine months of preparing what he is going to say, begins to speak. In Zechariah's case, the Spirit's a filling removes the consequence of his earlier sin and allows him to speak of yet future events. It is clear, complete, and true in every detail and understood by all in the hearing of the word that he spoke. And so as Zechariah begins to speak, the sin of doubt that had crept in, remember he's righteous and Elizabeth is righteous, but Zechariah's doubt is how is this going to happen? Uh, it begins to cause him to be mute for nine months. And that is taken away. It's removed. The consequences of that are removed. And he begins to proclaim. His proclamation is that redemption was accomplished. Notice what he says in verse 67 and following. He says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Can you imagine a people in Israel who had, been silent, who had not heard the voice of the Lord, who had been silent for 400 years, and hearing from the priest Zechariah these words. Just this sentence. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That would be a staggering statement that the people of Israel had longed to hear. Remember, there's many rebellious in the nation of Israel at this time, but this meant that the Lord was speaking again after the famine 
the famine of words of Amos chapter 8, verse 11. He proclaimed that redemption was accomplished. That means that the price was paid and this is what Jesus will do. It's interesting his phraseology because this work hadn't been done yet. But notice the shift. Notice the shift in Zechariah. When we go all the way back to the first portion of the chapter when Zechariah has doubts. Let's, let's go back there. Chapter 1 in the Gospel of Luke, verse 18 Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, I don't believe that God can do this. I don't believe that God is going to fulfill this. Now, go to where we just were in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Isn't that a fascinating phrase of trust now? Because Christ has not been crucified on the cross. Christ has not been risen from the dead yet in this passage that Zechariah begins to speak. And that would not happen for another 30-some years. And yet, Zechariah speaks as if it is a surety. He did not believe the angel when the angel said, you and Elizabeth are going to have a child. And suddenly, after nine months, the problem that Zechariah had in disbelief has been turned to belief. I believe that Christ will do what he set out to do. God will redeem his people. It's an amazing phrase. We don't catch it all in English. But what Zechariah is saying is he's certain that these events will take place, that Jesus will be the sacrifice. He didn't believe there to be a child, and here he is holding John having named him John, and as he begins to speak, he's saying, I know that God will fulfill his word. You may have gone through a season in life where something difficult has happened, and there's challenges, and you have a difficulty trusting that God will do what he said he's going to do. And when God does what he says he's going to do, you see the Lord answer prayer, and maybe in a different way than you anticipated. It was certainly different than Zechariah had anticipated. And as the Lord answers prayer, suddenly you go, ah, I understand that God is faithful in every way. That's where Zechariah is at. The child that Mary is carrying, who she is still carrying at this moment, Zechariah is now extolling the virtues of. What he's about to say is the wonder of who Jesus is. And he's declaring the excellencies of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit as he is speaking. He mentions, as he does so, he mentions this horn of salvation. The horn represents strength, and it's used throughout the Old Testament. He refers not to John, because John was not of the house of David, but to Jesus, who is the one sent to be the Redeemer, the strength of Israel, and the one who pays the price. We're going to look into the horn more in just a moment, but it's important for us to understand what is being said here in verse 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has redeemed, or who has visited and redeemed his people, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Several critical points are here. One, this one, not John, is the one who is of the house of David. Remember who John came from. John came from Zechariah and from Elizabeth. Elizabeth from uh, Aaron and Zechariah from Abijah. And so those are not of the line of David, but 
Jesus is of the line of David. And so there's clarity. He's not speaking of John. He's speaking of Jesus. And as he does so, is of the house of David. And he is the horn of salvation. This is a unique phrase that speaks to the strength of salvation and speaks to the one who's going to pay the price for that salvation. And that leads us into the promises because as he's beginning to transition, he's going to remind us that these words were spoken as promises, remembering the promises by the prophets. And this is where Zechariah is going to help us entertain some of these Old Testament saints. We're going to go back to the Old Testament largely over these next few moments, and we're going to use Zechariah's blessing to go back and help us fill in the details. Verse 70 says this in Luke chapter 1, As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We're going to begin by looking at the prophecy, the promise that was made. Go back. We're going to be bouncing back and forth now. Go back all the way to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. As the words of the prophet are spoken, and these are actually the words of David, as he refers to the same that we just spoke about, Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2, where the Scripture says this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David is proclaiming the power of the Lord. He's proclaiming the excellencies of the Lord and the salvation that is brought only through the Lord and only can be trusted as having come from the Lord. And this is my rock and my salvation. And in that same imagery of this bulwark of faith, the same picture of strength and magnificence, David uses the same phrase of the Lord that Zacharias just used of Jesus. And he is the horn of salvation. It is he that is going to rule on the throne of David. He is the one who came from the a line of David, and th- will sit on the throne of David and go over to Jeremiah for just a moment. There's a number of places that we could go, but Jeremiah chapter 23, as we look into this of the line of David, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, the scripture there says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This passage in Jeremiah comes on the heels of a very difficult text. In fact, go back to chapter 24, uh, verse 24. Or rather, excuse me, Jeremiah 22, verse 24. And we see the problem that's here. The problem is you have all this... uh, sin issue that's existing in the line of David and part of that line comes in verse 24 of chapter 22 the scripture says as I live declares the Lord through Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim king of Judah were the signet ring on my right hand yet I would tear you off this is discouraging news for Jeremiah this news that he's just received means that God has removed the ruling hand of Israel from the throne of Israel. But in the same breath, 
that the Lord speaks that. He says in the very next chapter, I will raise up a righteous branch of David. So while this line of David that comes through Solomon has the legal right to rule, he does no longer have the blood to rule because of Kaniah. And it will be given instead to Nathan, David's other son, and that line will rule. Jeremiah didn't have those details. You and I have those details. You and I have those details because we can look backwards through the Old Testament prophets, but can you imagine the grief of Jeremiah already suffering, already known as the weeping prophet, seeing Jerusalem begin to fall to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's told in the very next verse, as we just read, notice what he says in verse 20, chapter 22, verse 25, he says, and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who you are afraid, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. The Lord is judging Judah. The Lord is judging Jerusalem, and he says, you're going to be lost, you're going to be given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the one that you fear. It's, don't even fight against it, because this is going to be what happens. This is not a pleasant message for Jeremiah to give to the rulers of Israel of the time, of Judah at the time. And that is indeed what he has to proclaim. But in the very next breath, the Lord says, despite Kaniah violating this entire line of David, there will be a righteous branch of David. He will be the one who will rule. He will be the one who comes from the line of David. And this righteous branch, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, and it will be in his day that Judah will be saved. So on the one side, Jeremiah hears this great and terrible news. On the other side, he hears how the Lord is going to respond to it. Jeremiah would proclaim the excellencies of the faithfulness of God's promises with great anticipation. You and I have the opportunity to gather around the manger until, as we look back Jeremiah didn't have that privilege. He longed to look into the events of the birth of the righteous line of David. Can you imagine the scene in heaven, which we have no idea what had taken place. It's not recorded for us. But the scene in heaven when Jeremiah finds out the details of the righteous branch of David. What he anticipated to see. What he longed to see is revealed. Look into Luke again. We're going to jump back to chapter 1 in Luke for just a moment. We're going to continue to bounce back and forth to the Old Testament. Back to Luke. In verses 30 through 33, now the people involved in these verses are, are Mary and we dig into this in verse uh, 30 through 33. The scripture says, as the angel Gabriel is speaking, he says this, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
the angel Gabriel is speaking now to Mary and gives the peace that was missing from Jeremiah. This peace that Jeremiah understood that the Lord said both. The line of Kaniah would be cut off, would be removed, but the line of David would continue. How would that be? Mary is given the details from Gabriel on how that would all take place. This is astounding, and while it is true that we see these events, we still understand that this is still future. Some of these events are still future even for us today. Christ has not yet sat on the throne of David, but he will indeed sit on the throne of David. So you and I are caught in this in-between place. We have the opportunity to look back and forward, forward to the coming rule of Christ and back to know that Christ will fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill because he already came as a baby. He already came to fulfill this righteous branch of David, uniquely and distinctly. This salvation brought by Christ is the salvation, the salvation that is being spoken of in this text and another another text as well. The salvation that would come through Christ is a salvation that is far greater than the Roman oppression or any other peoples of the land oppressing the people of Israel. This was a far greater salvation. It was the salvation from the slave master of sin. And that would be the salvation offered. As we go back to verse 72, and we continue on in the words that would be spoken by Zechariah, notice that he continues to say now, pointing specifically to the characteristic of God that is unique and distinct to the God of the Bible, and only the God of the Bible. Verse 72 says, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to to our father Abraham to grant us. As Zechariah begins to extrapolate on the promises that have been revealed, and he's saying that the Lord is going to raise up a horn of salvation of the house of David, spoken from the holy prophets of old. We've already seen parts of that as we reflect back on the Old Testament, and certainly Zechariah was doing that. And now he goes back to another one, one that you and I have been studying recently, the covenant of Abraham. The covenant of Abraham. And it's fascinating, again, as he dives into this, the Christmas story does not begin with Mary receiving Gabriel. The Christmas story begins far earlier than that. It begins all the way in Genesis chapter 3, and actually before that even. But Zechariah takes us back. And he begins to help us understand that the mercy of God has shown as a major theme to any biblical Christmas message, as it must be, starting all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where a covenant is made with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord says that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. The mercy of God would be demonstrated not just to the people of Abraham, but to all people. God's mercy is displayed by his remembrance of the covenant that he had made with Abraham, that he had given again to Moses in the Palestinian or land covenant, that he had spoken again to Jeremiah as he revealed the covenant for the people of Israel, the new covenant, and as he had spoken to David in the Davidic covenant. All three of these covenants, all looking forward to with great anticipation of the coming of Christ and Christ fulfilling them. So when the New Testament says, reminds us that Christ fulfilled the law, that he completed the law, 
it is important for us to understand this is far greater. The birth of Christ was the anticipated event of all the ages. When we look back and we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we ought to think of the generations that had passed who were looking forward with great anticipation to the one who had been promised. The one that they knew only as a mystery. The one that they knew would come. That had been foretold all the way back in Genesis 3. The one who would crush the head of the serpent. The one who was looked to when the first animal sacrifices were made in Genesis chapter 3 that reflected back on the coverings that were given to Adam and to Eve after their sin. This is the one that all of history has looked to. This is the one that all of the prophets who paid attention and listened to the covenant made with Abraham were watching for, waiting for, and anticipating. And notice the response, the responsibility as Zechariah continues in verses 73 and seven, through 75, he says, The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemy, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Salvation comes for a reason. Salvation comes for the reason of redemption, which Zechariah has already proclaimed. And it comes with the responsibility of obedience responsibility to follow after the things of the Lord. And so therefore, you and I have been called to service as Zechariah was. This Christmas season, it may be easy for us to be filled with pride for one reason or another. Our ability to give gifts or to receive gifts, uh, our ability to um, provide or whatever it may happen to be that we may be filled with pride falsely believing that somehow we deserved a Savior. Zechariah, I think, may have exhibited some of that same pride. I'm old. I'm past childbearing years. Elizabeth is old, past childbearing years. Lord, we know what you've done with Abraham and Sarah, but really, we don't think it's going to happen again. There's a bit of pride as... He puts himself into the place of the capacity of decision-making. And the Lord said, no, you're going to have a son, and his name will be John the Baptist, and he'll be the forerunner. Nine months later, the attitude that was there in Zechariah has been removed, and the pride that had been formerly there is removed and replaced with humility. And Zechariah adds a challenge. And notice the challenge that he adds. He says this in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's a responsibility of righteousness and holiness. So there's a response of obedience all of our days. And then the news that I imagine... Zechariah had been building up to. It seems like it's crescendoing up to verses 76 through the end of the chapter. And the scripture says this as we look into the truth that salvation has come. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Let me stop there for just a moment. 
Can you imagine the loving embrace as Zachariah is holding his child, his only child, the one that was promised to him just nine months ago, that he denied the possibility of, that he was mute because of that for nine months, and now nine months waiting to express himself, here it is. He's been expressing the virtues and the wonder and the blessings of the, the child who is Jesus. And now he looks at John, and he says, and you, child, you will be the prophet that goes before him. You can imagine as Zechariah would have had access uh, to the scrolls of the Old Testament, would have been digging through and finding all of the information he could have on who John the Baptist would be, this forerunner, and all of it is coming out. He reveals and reflects on the mission of John the Baptist, and he does so in verse 76. The benediction changes focus. He's extolling the virtues of God, and he's extolling the virtues of the Savior, and now he turns his eyes to his son, John the Baptist, and his purpose. The purpose of, the John, of John the Baptist is to be the forerunner of Christ. John's task was to go before the coming Christ and to be a prophet directed by, by the Lord and prepared, preparing the world for Christ. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to bounce back to the New Testament and Mark's gospel in just a moment. But Isaiah 40, verse 3, and these words that most certainly Zechariah had studied himself. Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This voice, this voice that would be crying in the wilderness, make straight the desert and the highway for our God, was going to be Zechariah's son. This was Zechariah's son. Turn over to Mark, Mark chapter 1, because it gives us the reminder that that is true. Going back to the prophet Isaiah, you say, well, that, that seems obscure, Zechariah, I believed, understood it. Mark chapter 1 tells us this uh, to be true. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the scripture says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right off. Right off, Mark jumps straight into the ministry of John the Baptist. And how does he do it? By pointing back to the words of Isaiah, saying, He is the one who will proclaim, make straight the paths for the Lord. And it was John the Baptist who was proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the message of John the Baptist. The Old Testament prophets and righteous people of the Old Testament longed for the Messiah. And Isaiah longed for for the one who would make straight the paths and the Messiah. In fact, we understand this. Turn over to Matthew's gospel now as we fill in a few more details. Matthew chapter 13, where the scripture says this, and an extended portion to read. Jesus is speaking in parable here. It says, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, 
and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull in their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand in their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah, Amos, Malachi, Micah, all of these long to see the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. But they could not see and they could not hear because details had been not given to them. The wonder of Christmas must not be lost on us because we are familiar with the Christmas narrative. When we lace up our sandals to walk where the Old Testament saints walked, we would have longed for this coming Messiah. We would have dug deeply into the texts of the Old Testament to understand who He is and when He would come and where He would come. In Luke chapter 2, verses 34 through 38, just, or, uh, 34, yeah, th- 34 through 38, just write those down. We have the examples of Simeon and Anna. I preached on those two characters last year. And they give us a brief glimpse of those who waited with anticipation of the coming of Christ, waiting in the temple day and night for Christ to appear, for the promised Messiah. Finishing out in Luke chapter 1, John's mission is not much different than our mission. Our, our course is not the same course. We're not prophets. We're not those who are crying in the wilderness, but notice what John was to do. He says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. There is a developing of understanding As John would grow, his message would not be that much more different than our message, other than he was to tell before and we are to tell after of Christ, the Savior of the world. His message was to give the world the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins that is offered as a free gift of salvation. He's also to explain and to extol on the mercies of the Lord, the gracious mercies of the Lord. There's a reason that we must respond the way that John was to respond. You and I have the same responsibility. And so not only, do, uh, not only must we watch for Zechariah's sin and avoid that kind of sin of that pride creeping in, but we also must be those who are gentle and soft in proclaiming the answers of the mercies of God and extolling on those. Notice again, as he speaks of this in verses 78 and 79, verse 78 says, because of the tender mercies of God of our God, the tender mercies of our God. It is 
this display of the incredible attribute of the tender mercy of God that causes us, even in this time of remembrance, thinking back of the Christmas season, to stop what we're doing and to explain and to study and to proclaim the tender mercies of our God demonstrated in the arrival of the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do we just let it arrogantly pass by? Or we rudely cut people off in the grocery store because they've rudely cut us off in the grocery store? Are we going to be those who boldly proclaim the tender mercies of God? Zechariah's message to his newborn son, eight days old. John is eight days old during this benediction that Zechariah has waited nine months to give. Zechariah's message to his newborn son, eight days old and about to be circumcised, reminds us of our mission as believers this Christmas season. We are to be those who proclaim God's incredible tender mercies displayed for us in the tender child born in a manger. It is my heart's desire that we leave here after the message is in Luke 1, convicted of what we now must do. We have responsibility. It's easy for us to get lost in the battle over Christmas. In fact, even over the word Christmas. And different seasons bring in different times and different challenges and different obstacles. But it's easy to get lost in those obstacles. It's easy to get lost in the busyness of the season. But we must remember that we would have no salvation if it were not for the tender mercies of our Lord. And there are a great number of people in our world today who know nothing of a merciful God. Zechariah's benediction that he waited nine months to give culminates in this great crescendo of praise, the tender mercies of God. To share this message is our task, to give to people the knowledge of sin and salvation. These words came from Zechariah, who waited nine months to share them. In them, we watch as God, deeply involved in humanity, ensures that the stage is set for Christ. We turn the corner, having laid the foundation, John the Baptist is now arrived. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, the famine of words that the Lord spoke about has now been brought to a close. I spent a lot of time on the plains of Kansas, and whenever there was a drought, it was of great celebration to get a real rain. Out here where it rains, just whenever it wants to on a whim, we don't quite understand that. But in the plains of Kansas, when it hasn't rained for years, and suddenly a rain comes, you have people literally in the streets dancing in the rain. That was Zechariah. At the announcement of the benediction of his son's eight-day-old celebration are you celebrating the breaking of the famine god is at work in the nation of israel and it will result in the perfect lamb of god being born in a manger in just a few short months after this time 
let us celebrate with the same kind of enthusiasm as Zechariah did. Let's close tonight in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that we have all of heaven and we have all of those in the know on earth celebrating and praising the culmination of the events that will happen in a few short months after these events that we've just studied. We praise you that Zechariah, who had been silent for nine months, is among the first to proclaim the celebration that Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is coming. Lord, we praise you that among the choirs that would join him would be the angelic choirs, those who knew from the very first sin to that very day, the course of human history. They had seen the marvelous, miraculous, merciful work of God. And they shouted glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Lord, I pray that we would not lose sight of this joyous celebration and that as we have laid the foundation looking through the Old Testament prophets, we will now be ready to begin to look into the testimony of the shepherds, the testimony of the angels, the testimony of Mary and Joseph, and the testimony of the triune God all at work over the next four times that we gather together. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for the tender mercies that were demonstrated to us while we were yet enemies, enemies of the cross, vile and hating, and yet you would show your great love for us in sending your only begotten Son, that we may have salvation freely given to us by the incredible work that would be completed in its entirety by this child who'd be born in a manger. Lord, may our voices be the first to celebrate and to praise and to exalt because we have been those who have been the recipients of salvation that was paid for and assured and provided for by this child who would die in our place and rise again victorious over sin and death. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this as we begin now in these last few weeks before Christmas. I pray that our attentions would be always attuned to your incredible mercies in giving you the glory and the honor that is due. We ask your blessing as we depart from here this evening that you would send us out as those who would be your proclaimers, giving us opportunity to speak to friends and neighbors and family that do not yet know you as Savior, that this Christmas season they would hear the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for them. That your name would be glorified and exalted and high and lifted up as we celebrate your wonder and awe and these tender mercies that we have studied tonight. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. And we ask your blessing as we depart. And in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.